Okay, so as I, uh, we mentioned uh, earlier, this is the season of Lent, those 40 days minus Sunday before Easter Sunday. Um, we're pausing our series in the book of Luke, and we're going to actually spend this next six weeks focused on the last week of Jesus' life. Um, this, this week that uh, leads to his death and then resurrection uh, and so we got super, super creative on our sermon series title for Lent. You guys are going to love this. I mean, we should probably trademark this. Um, it's called, ready for this, Jesus' Final Week. Huh? You like that? I mean, this is catchy. That's our creativity right there. So. But here, here's the reason we wanted to do this. Um, every, every year, what happens for me is we get to the week before Easter. What's that, what's that Sunday called? Anyone? Palm Sunday. We get to that Palm Sunday day, and then uh, that week kind of rushes by. We come back, you know, some of us for Good Friday, and that's about the cross of Christ. And then Sunday, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. But there's so much that goes on between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. I thought, let's just take the whole thing and stretch the different things that happen between the Sunday that we call Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Let's kind of look at all those diff- at some of those different episodes that are happening there. So I know this is going to freak some of us out. This is, uh, um, I know this is not Palm Sunday. That's not for like five more weeks. But today, guess what we're going to do? We're going to look at Palm Sunday. So, and we're doing that because it's like the first day of the final week. So I know that's not traditional for some of you. That's probably going to, you know, set you off a little. But just humor me, humor me on this one um, because that's what I'm preaching. So there we go. Uh, Now, as we get ready and look here, at the story of Jesus' final week, I have to tell you, Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is just such an odd thing to me. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, um, did any of you grow up in church, like Sunday school, kids' church, any of that stuff? Yeah, some of you did, okay. So uh, I grew up kind of that way, and I loved Palm Sunday, like singing hosannas, and anybody wave the palm branches, do that? Yeah, you wave the palm branches, sometimes there'd be like a little parade that the kids would put on, and you know, the the biggest kid would be the donkey, and the little kid would get on the back, and it it was, yeah, it was weird. Um, And when you're a kid, you know, Palm Sunday, it's like, oh, this just seems like an awesome parade for Jesus, right? And, And maybe for children, that's okay, But as adults, um, we have to admit that Palm Sunday is actually a bit more complicated. Um, And see, for me, the reason it's more complicated is uh, at some point I connected the dots of the whole week of the Easter story and realized that um, the rest of the story, you know, that starts with Palm Sunday, like by Friday... That same crowd that on Palm Sunday is like, hey, Hosanna, and looks like they're worshiping Jesus. That same crowd that did that on Sunday is the same crowd on Friday that shouted, crucify him. And give us Barabbas. Um, that kind of puts a spin on it a little bit for me that I think is important to, to realize, to take this into context, because The reason they said they went so quickly from one way to the other is that they didn't believe. This crowd didn't believe. Very quickly they turned um, thinking, okay, that kingdom that this supposed king that we thought we were getting, that kingdom's not going to work. Like Jesus' kind of kingdom, it's not tough enough. It's not forceful enough. Because if you want to get something done in this world, everybody knows. I mean, come on, Jesus should know. You've got to get power and leverage in order to get your way. That's how it works in the kingdoms of this world world, right? 
And so for me, what Palm Sunday reminds us of is just another one of the many places that Jesus over and over taught that there are two ways to do life. There are two kingdoms to live and operate from. One way is the kingdom of God, and the other is the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is about the cross. The kingdoms of this world are about the power of the sword. The kingdom of God moves forward by the power of love, and the kingdoms of this world inevitably move by coercive force. The kingdom of God is all about power coming under, and the kingdoms of this world are about grasping for power over. And because Jesus did not compromise the way of his kingdom and trade in the cross he was heading for and instead pick up a sword, because he didn't do that and overthrow the Roman Empire, the people turned on him, thinking, I imagine, like, well, come on. I mean, Jesus, how, how are we going to win if we can't use power over others? The, I mean, this power of love thing that you do, that sounds nice, but frankly, it's a little naive. There's no way that that's going to work. And as soon as I start to kind of get harsh on their mistake and rejecting Jesus and choosing the wrong kingdom, I have to recognize that in big ways and small ways, the mentality of the crowd that I recognize in them, I sometimes see myself leaning into as well. And sometimes in really simple and embarrassing ways. Like um, a couple days ago, uh, my wife Heidi had some real estate clients that she was going to take out to look at uh, some houses. And so I took her car um, to go get it washed. Now normally, I just had a knee replacement like three weeks ago. So normally I would just go wash it myself, clean it out, make it really nice, make it look really good. But I did, I, just because of the bum knee, I couldn't do that. So I thought, okay, listen, I wanted to get it done right. I'm going to get it done well. I'm going to go to an unnamed uh, really good car wash down here where they clean it out for you. And when I got there, I was like, you know what, fine. I'm just going to, I've never paid this much for a wash before, but I'm going to do it just to get it done and make sure it's done right because we're in a hurry. I got to get going. She's got to go, right? So you can tell where this story's going, can't you? Um, yeah, that didn't work out. Like, <laughs> I got done. Um, and uh, I didn't, like, it was a mess. Like, like popcorn on the floor still. Like, a vacuum usually can pick up a little. There's a popcorn, candy wrap, stuff that, and the car wasn't that dirty to start with. And then on top of that, like, obviously nobody had wiped down the things that said it was going to get wiped down because everything was still dusty and dirty and a mess, and the windshield was dirty, and the, like, there was still, like, some bird poop on. It's just like, how, I just paid a lot of money for a wash. It didn't work. So I know this will shock you, but I was, um, <clears throat> I was irritated. <laughs> okay, you know me that well. Yeah, no, I was irritated, right? And what I wanted to do was exert this power over, right? I wanted to get mad, show my irritation, complain, take it out on somebody. And honestly, I've done that far too many times. Um, but this time, maybe only because I knew I was going to have to stand up here in front of you and preach a sermon about this, <laughs> I slowed down a little bit, um, made a phone call. Um, asked for what I needed. I was respectful and kind, and they were happy to help. Now, when I tell that story, again, I'm like, I kind of, kind of look like I'm the hero of that story, and I'm not, because you know if you've been around here and heard me talk about the things I often struggle with, um, I don't get it right. Oftentimes, I don't get it right. I don't get it right at home. I don't get it right in my marriage. I don't always get it right here at the office. I don't always get it right in a stressful elder meeting. I don't always get it right with my Son, I blow it too often, and maybe some of you can relate, 
Because when we do that, when we find ourselves getting powered up, I, I think what's going on is we think sometimes that we're going to get taken advantage of if we treat people and we open with kindness and respect instead of, you know, getting big or mad. And when we do that, that's one of the reasons we quickly shift to powering up, powering over, especially when things get stressful. Um, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's really how our world works. It's kind of how the world runs around us. I mean, that's how the world, the kingdom of this world, uh, shows up in our workplace. Oftentimes, um, too many bosses will like power up and enjoy making the people who work for them feel small, make them feel like inferiors to you know, keep them in their place. That's a kingdom of this world strategy. Happens a lot. Um, Sometimes in our parenting it shows up, you know. There are some people who will say, kingdom of this world kind of philosophy, say, well, here's how you exert power over your children and control them. And a lot of times, if you're a parent like most parents who are somewhat exhausted <laughs> or desperate, you go, fine, I'm just going to power up, I'm going to do that, I'm going to power up and power over my kid, I'm going to go down that road. Um, that's an option. Sometimes people give kingdom of this world kind of advice on how to approach your marriage and how a marriage is supposed to function. And there's many schools of thought that essentially they teach you, okay, if you want to get along with your spouse, it's about manipulating each other so that you can get your needs met. Now, they don't actually say it that way, but that's what they're selling. It's, um, hey, if you give your spouse this, then you can get that. And so that's subtly or not so subtly, about powering over your spouse. Now, what we know in these examples and many others is that it never really works out in the long term. We know the longer we live and have watched this stuff not work, we, we kind of know that's, that's just not the best way to go, but it's really hard to break free from operate operating in these ways of the kingdom of this world because they are deeply ingrained in our human brokenness and it's been that way for the thousands of years that people have existed and that is exactly what Jesus is pressing up against in this story that we call Palm Sunday. So let's dive into the scriptures that tell the story of that day. Now again, well, we're going to pick up the story here. It's Sunday of Jesus' final week. And here's what happened. <clears throat> Before this, Jesus, in all four Gospels that tell this story, Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem. I think we're in Luke chapter 9 here, and there's 20-some-odd chapters. And this is where it says, Jesus now turns and heads to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of chapters before he gets to Jerusalem. But he's on this journey that takes a long time to get there. It's building the climactic moment in all four Gospels about Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And then here's his entry into Jerusalem. Some people, like your Bible might even label it, the triumphal entry. That wasn't in the original. It's just a helpful heading to show you where you are. The triumphal entry is an interesting label for it. John's account in chapter 12, um, in verse 12 reads, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, so this is Passover, they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Now, pause for a second. That word Hosanna means save us now. 
Save us, Jesus. And what they want to be saved from is from their Roman oppressors. They want, and they have wanted for hundreds of years, for a Messiah to come and lead a military revolt because that's how you know you get things done in the kingdoms of this world, by the power of the sword. So when they say, Hosanna, save us now, Jesus, they're also subtly and not so subtly saying, but but, but save us the way we want to be saved. Right? So they shout, continue here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the keyword king of Israel. Now when they call him king, this is, this is a bit risky, um, shouting out that Jesus is their king, because there's already another king, King Herod. Um, he's pretty vicious, pretty ruthless especially against anyone who thinks they're going to be the king. And over that king here, it is the Roman emperor. So calling Jesus a king, not a good idea. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. And this is from Zechariah chapter 9. This is a prophecy how the Messiah will come. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. Again, that's a prophecy from 500 years before that that tells us how and tells them how the Messiah will actually arrive when the Messiah comes to Jerusalem. Now, Luke 19 picks up the story with Palm Sunday and gives a little more detail to us. Verse 38 of Luke 19 says, they're yelling, blessed is the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, though, said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, (laughs) the stones will cry out. Now, I want to pause for a second here because the Pharisees actually do have a point here. Um, The fact that people are calling Jesus the king is a surefire way to provoke the Romans to show up and start killing people and squashing this rebellion. So the Pharisees, they already don't like Jesus, but, but they are also saying right here, like, hey, Jesus, this is going to get us all killed if that keeps up. Next verse, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, here's his response, he wept over it. He wept over it. Now, hang on, if this is a triumphal entry, if this is the celebration of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, then why does Luke cap the story off with this important detail by telling us that Jesus wept? Like, what what kind of celebration ends with the hero grieving and in tears. Like, I'm sure when Jesus was on earth, he was human, so he probably cried often, right? But here's the deal. The gospel writers only record him crying two times, all four gospels. This is one of them right here. Anybody know what the other one was? Yeah, Lazarus, right? Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. It gets you all kinds of points in Bible quiz as a kid, so there you go, Lazarus. Um, Now, when they wrote these two times down, because again, I'm sure he wept other times, but when they wrote these two downs, these are specifically for us to notice. And so right here, one of the reasons that I believe that he knows, uh, or or that that he wept, is he knows. He knows that their cries of, Hosanna, Jesus, you are our king, that those are actually empty shouts, they're hollow praises. Because like I said earlier, the same crowd that's yelling, Hosanna right now, on Sunday is the same crowd that by Friday will scream, crucify him. See, Jesus weeps because he recognizes, he, he doesn't weep for himself, he, re, he weeps because he recognizes that they have missed the heart of the message of his 
kingdom. They're looking for a military leader who will take care of their problems, the Roman occupation. And they were like, they were all about Jesus. They're pro-Jesus as long as he fulfills their expectations, which he's not gonna. And so he wept, knowing, again, not on his behalf, he knew for them their persistence as a people in following the ways of the kingdoms of this world are doomed. Now, we'll come back to that, but I want to point out an important detail right here and ask a question. So Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. Why? Like, what message is he sending in doing that? Well, there's some, I think, interesting backstory here. I've talked a little bit about it the last couple of years in Palm Sunday, so I'm not going to completely rehash that. But, but, but here's the backstory. Jerusalem was being ruled by Rome, and anybody know the name of the governor? Pontius Pilate? Yes, Pontius Pilate was the governor, and his job, if he wanted to keep his job, was to keep Jerusalem under control. And the way that is done is through power over, by wielding the power of the sword, by coercion, by domination, by force. Well, every year, Jerusalem was the place that the Jewish people wanted to come to from all over to celebrate Passover, one of their biggest festivals. It's this historical event where they celebrate where 1,200 years before that, right, right here at Jesus' time, 1,200 years before that is when the people of God were delivered from uh, slavery in Israel. So Passover would happen. Everybody wanted to be in Jerusalem. The, the city would swell about five times or more population, and there would be about 200,000 people in this ancient city for the week of the Passover celebration. So Pilate, he's no dummy. He knows. <laughs> if there's going to be any trouble, if anything's going to arise, if any of the Jews are going to get ideas about revolting, Passover is about their last time getting set free. They're going to want it to happen again at this Passover. So there's lots of people. It's a really risky time. There's lots of passion. There's lots of energy about their freedom. So what Pilate does is he floods the city every year with Roman troops. In fact, to do that, historians say that it was likely that there was a parade, which also happened the week before Passover. It was uh, an intimidation parade. It was a parade to remind the Jews that, hey, 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 Rome is in charge. And that intimidation parade, it would have been very impressive. Like, Pilate um, lived on the coast, didn't really like Jerusalem, but he knew he needed to be around for this, so he enters from the west gate of Jerusalem. Interesting, Jesus on Palm Sunday comes east gate. Pilate comes in, his parade, soldiers marching, weapons brandished, sending a message loud and clear, we are in charge, and if you dare challenge us, we will crush you. And an important detail about this military parade, there would have been lots of horses, lots of horses. Now, back in that day and age, horses were not pets. Um, you didn't just use a horse to ride around as transportation. Um, horses existed for the purpose of war. Um, they were like our modern-day tanks, right? So if you saw a horse, a, a horse was a war horse. Every time, a horse was a war horse. And so Pilate himself would have been riding an impressive war horse, and he would have made sure he was the focal point of this parade. He's, he's a dude on his war horse. He is the embodiment of power of the kingdoms of this world, of power over the power of the sword, 
And many historians um, say that Jesus, probably on the same day as Pilate's annual parade, same day, maybe even the same time of day, as Pilate's coming in from the west gate on his horse, Jesus is staging what you could call a counter parade from the east gate. But instead of trying to mimic what Pilate's doing, riding a war horse, Jesus intentionally chooses to ride in on a peace donkey. And it wasn't even a full-grown donkey. That's what's kind of comical here. It says it was a young colt, a foal. So that makes it pretty small. It's actually really small to actually have Jesus try to even ride. So he's probably dragging his feet. Like Jesus rides this thing in, and he, on purpose, he looks ridiculous, not impressive at all. It's almost comical theater here. Uh, He does look ridiculous, but this, again, this is intentional like, he, he could have just walked in. So why, 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 a, why a peace donkey? Well, one of the reasons is what we read earlier here. He was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. 500 years before him, Zechariah proclaimed that one day, when the Messiah does come, an entirely different kind of king will come as Israel's Messiah. A king that we might describe as the antithesis of all these dudes on their horses. Verse 9 of Zechariah 9 says, So rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey. A colt. The foal, so the foal of a donkey. And again, John quotes this to that point. Um, But we'll take you to the next verse, which the people would have known when John quoted that far. They knew the rest of this. Next verse, verse 10, Zechariah says, He will take away the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The weapons of war will be broken. He will teach peace to the nations. So, why a (laughs) peace donkey? Well, because as Zechariah prophesied, The ways of the kingdom of God stand in stark contrast to the ways of the kingdoms of this world. God's kingdom is about power under, not power over. God's kingdom is not about um, the power of coercion and force. God's kingdom is about the power of love. And although that way of love, the way of God's kingdom, actually leads to a cross... (laughs) Jesus will show even then that the cross, the power of the cross is far mightier than the power of the sword. Because less than a week from this story of Palm Sunday, this this cross, the cross of Christ will change history. So Pilate, I mean, he does, he looks impressive, right? He's an impressive dude on a horse back in his day. But here's the truth. If not for the story of Jesus, we wouldn't even know, as as important as he was back then, we wouldn't even know he existed. That's how fleeting the power of the sword is. He would be forgotten, if not for a footnote, in a greater story, a greater kingdom that was actually showing him as the foil to the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. What's interesting is historians and people, critics of the Bible for a long time said he never existed. There's no record of Pilate. This is all made up. He's just made up for the Bible story. And then in the 1960s, Archaeologists discovered inscriptions. Oh, there's a guy named Pilate, right? So now it's proven that he did exist. That's how unimportant he became, even though back then he was the biggest of all big deals. 
Because the kingdom of this world is fleeting. Where the kingdom of God, the power of the cross, is enduring. Now, sure, that was back then. And I wish we would have learned as a people, as a cultures throughout history. But the truth is, this is still the way that the kingdoms of our world operate now. It's almost like we go through all history. You just read history and go, we never learn, do we? We never learn. We never learn. Um, Brian Zond actually titles a chapter in one. This guy's got great chapter titles, right? One of his books, um, he, he, he has a chapter title. He says it this way. He says, there's always some dude on a horse. <laughs> Everywhere you go, any capital city of the world, um, and if you travel at all, you'll see there's going to be a monument to a general uh, on a war horse, right? We, I just... Here's 10. Here's just 10. Quick, real quick here. Here we go. Modern day. Rome. Some dude on a horse. St. Petersburg in Russia. Right there, that's Peter the Great, right? That's, that's a dude on a horse. Um, Berlin. Some dude on a horse. Paris. Some dude on a horse. London. Some dude on a horse. Um, Lisbon. Oh, look at that. Another dude on a horse, right? Uh, Madrid. There's some dude on a, well, I mean, that's kind of, I don't know about horses very much, but that's kind of a chubby horse. I could probably ride that horse. Maybe that horse is for me. Um, next one, Mexico City. Some dude on a horse, and it looks like you can rent a building. There's a phone number in the back. Yeah, okay, didn't show up. All right. Um, Toronto, even our peaceful Canadians. There you go. A dude on a horse. Washington, D.C., some dude on a horse. But hey, he's our dude, so that's, you know, right? <laughs> But there's always some dude on a horse because although Jesus, who was God in the flesh, came and offered a better way, a better kingdom, the nations of this world have refused to bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, so the world continues to blindly pursue the ways the kingdoms of this world wielding the power of the sword, this power over way of doing life, it's almost all anybody knows to do. And it breaks Jesus' heart. He grieves. It broke his heart back then, as it does today. And where do I get that? Um, look back at Luke 19 again. Remember the crowds are scream, screaming, Hosanna, save us now, be our king. But verse 19 here shows us why this parade was not actually a celebration for Jesus, but one of his darkest, saddest moments. Verse 41, again, I'll read this verse and continue on. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, and now he's prophesying, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come, here's the prophecy, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. See, Jesus weeps the kind of deep grief that you have when you are mourning the loss of a loved one because he's not punishing them. Here's just what happens in the cycles of the kingdoms of this world. Inevitably, that's where it lands, destruction. So why was Jesus weeping? 
yeah, he knows they're going to turn on him just five days later, but also he knows and prophesies what he prophesied right there. He knows what's going to happen if the, the people of God do not turn from their power over power of the sword ways. He says they're going to be destroyed by the sword. I mean, in effect, Jesus is saying in this prophecy, unless they repent and embrace the way of the kingdom that, that he is bringing, and they abandon their hell-bent road toward violent retribution, that they'll all die by Roman swords and collapsing buildings. And he wasn't just being mad because 40 years after he prophesied that, it's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened when Jerusalem collapsed under the bombardment of Roman catapult balls. Think 100-pound hailstones being heaved into the city, and more than half a million people were killed by Roman swords. Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. A scholar I, I read this week said, Rome really went above and beyond when they destroyed the Jewish temple, the sacred temple, this place of Jewish worship that their religion was centered on. They didn't just burn it, knock it down. They didn't want any chance for it to be rebuilt easily, so they ground all the stones to powder, or many of them, enough that you couldn't rebuild. Some historians believe that some of that powder that the temple was, stones were ground down to, some of that powder got taken back to Rome, and it was used in a monument to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem by General Titus. Here's General Titus, another dude on a horse right there. Um, next to it is modern day, still standing, the Arch of Titus in Rome today, made back then with some of the powder taken from the destroyed Jerusalem temple just to just to rub it in, just to rub it in, because, because if we want to live according to the ways of the kingdoms of this world, well, there's always some dude on a horse. And for those of us that follow Jesus, like when we stop long enough to think about this, Jesus who actually rode a peace donkey, the fact that there's always some dude on a horse and that, that dude actually gets celebrated and lifted up by the nations of our world and the kingdoms of this world. It's, it's two words. It's silly and sad. <laughs> it's silly because they're all doing the same thing. It's the same thing over and over all through history. They're imitating one another over and over, fighting, using coercive power to try to get their way. So it's just, it's ridiculous. But it's also sad because the truth is some dude on a horse <laughs> never brings real peace, it only leads eventually to pain and destruction and more cycles of revenge, which is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and why God's heart still breaks for humanity as he invites us to, to turn, to repent, to acknowledge he's Lord and to follow his way in his kingdom so that we would learn from him the power under way of love, which is the only true and lasting way to peace. So look, <laughs> prophesies Zechariah, see your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding, not on a war horse, but on a peace donkey. That's the way the rightful king 
the king of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, King Jesus, king of a different kingdom, approaches Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, forsaking the coercive posture of the war horse to ride this ridiculous peace donkey. The true king of kings inaugurates the reign of the kingdom of God by way of the power of love because God knows that love is the most excellent way. In fact, he rigs the universe (laughs) so that it works best when powered by love. Now, as I shift gears here a little bit. I want to clarify something. Um, I want to make sure that we don't miss the point of of what's happening and just think it's all about what's out here and big and cultural. Um, There's a point for our own lives as well. And that could be an alarm telling me, all right, you're done. You're finished. We could be over with. It's always fun. Um, We'll just let it ring. My ADD, see if my Adderall's working. Okay, here it is. Okay. Um, let Let me clarify. Like, I'm, I don't want anybody to walk out of here thinking I'm arguing for the rightness or the wrongness of the military. Like, right? I appreciate our military. I am so grateful for the men and women who serve our country, who selflessly sacrifice. I am really grateful. In fact, I want to I wanna appreciate you real quick. If you have served, would you just slip your hand up so we can applaud you? Would you just, yeah, so thank you. Yeah. So don't walk out of here mistaking that that's what this is about. Um, um, that would distract us and keep us from looking at how this idea of power over and power under applies to our own individual lives and the lives of, uh, of our church. See, because there are two ways, there are two kingdoms that impact our everyday lives. There are two ways, two stories, two kingdoms that each of us chooses to operate from. It's the way of the donkey or the way of the horse. It's the way of the cross or the way of the sword. It's the power over way or the way of power under. And so which life are you building? Who are you following? Which kingdom are you choosing? Are you pursuing a life built like the kingdoms of this world get built that are based on power over? Or are you looking to follow Jesus and learn the power under ways of the kingdom of God? And to make this really practical, I just want to wrap this up by noticing, by wondering um, how, how this applies and how these two different approaches to power show up in our everyday lives. It's really practical. There's two ways, okay? There's two ways. There's two ways to handle <laughs> when you're driving in uh, heavy traffic. There's two ways, right? You could be a war horse who wants to teach all these idiots a lesson, you know, not let anybody in. Or... You could be a peace donkey who's learning patience, learning to maybe imagine the best about idiots, others. I mean, um, learning how to give grace even on the road. There's two ways. Um, There's two ways. There's two ways to treat the server when he or she is being a little slow or making a mistake at the restaurant. You could. You could insult them. You could be a war horse. By the way, though, most people, we don't operate best When pressure is applied, we operate best when we're encouraged. So good luck on trying to get your way by being a jerk. (laughs) You can do that, though. Um, That's a way, pretty common way. Or you could display the heart of Jesus, be kind, still ask for what you need, um, but find a way to encourage and treat that person with dignity. There's two ways. 
There's two ways to be a husband. And there's two ways, at least two ways, <laughs> to be a wife. Um, either one, just get on that war horse, right? <clears throat> just grasp and struggle for control for who matters most, for who is in charge and for who better submit to who. You could do that. <laughs> Good luck, but you could do that. Um, or you follow Jesus and actually read that one verse more than some of the other verses on husbands and wives. Read that one right after it that says, submit to one another. <laughs> do marriage that way. That'd be following Jesus. Um, make it your goal to outserve each other. There's two ways. Um, there's two ways to raise a family. You could be a warhorse. You're going to push and demand. You're going to be impatient and criticize and yell or shame until everyone gets in line with what you want. You can do that. Or you can get in the donkey parade, right? Be full of grace. Own your own stuff. And trust Jesus to lead you as you raise your family. Which, by the way, this does not mean <laughs> that your parenting job is to um, let the kids make all the decisions or do whatever they want or choose whatever they want. Passivity, passivity is not loving. That's not the kingdom of God way. Passivity is not that. Um, parents, it's your job to raise your kids. Um, specifically, a question I get pretty frequently is when a parent goes, well, I was forced to go to church when I was a kid and I don't want to force my kids to go to church. Um, should I force my kids to go to church? Here's what I say. Um, hey, it's not about forcing your kid to go to church. It's about loving them enough to say, hey, you don't have to get mad. You don't have to raise your, just, hey, in our family, this is what we do. This is what we do on Sunday morning. Um, it's part of loving them enough to make being around church a pattern so even if they don't seem like they're getting anything, you don't know. I don't know. The Holy Spirit, though, is at work in their hearts. And this is not the kind of church that beats kids up. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's two ways. Two ways to raise your family. So Two ways to handle conflict. <clears throat> you can let that war horse rise up in you, and you can run over anybody who disagrees with you. Make sure they all know where you're right, they're wrong. Or you can let the way of Jesus lead you. You can stop avoiding and tiptoeing around the issue because, again, passivity is not godliness. <laughs> stop avoiding the issue, speak directly to them, and actually give a chance for peace to be made. There's two ways. There's two ways to run your business. You can win at all costs. You can grasp every dollar you can get, destroy the competition. You can overcharge or cheat, cheat the customer whenever you possibly have a chance or... <laughs> Or you look to honor, to go the extra mile, to actually, actually care about the people. There's two ways. There's two ways to be a boss. You can let the person working for you know that they are inferior, that they're expendable. You can do that. Or you can find ways to honor, to develop, to train, to grow, uh, grow them while you still get the job done. You can do that. There's two ways to be an employee. There's the way of this world, pretty common to try to just do the bare minimum, to be the first one out the door, to cheat on your hours or skimp on your hours, to never flex, to make sure somebody else takes care of the mess. You can, you can do that. Or you could follow the way of Jesus that Paul articulated in Colossians 3, where he said, do your work not unto your boss, do it unto the Lord. Do all your work as unto the Lord, as unto Jesus, that you're not 
That's yeah, a way to be an employee. That's, you're not trying to just make your boss happy. You're doing that work as unto the Lord. There's two ways. There's two ways to deal with the place you give politics in your life. I'll save the best one for last, right? Because um, lots of us, myself included, have to watch ourselves. You can, you can be a warhorse. You can be a warhorse. You can give in to fear and watch your hours and hours of your favorite news network every single week, leaving you with the idea and the thought that the only choice you have, the only choice we have to save anything is to power over, insult, demean, disrespect, villainize. Yeah, you can do that. Or you can be just informed enough to pray effectively and learn to love your so-called enemies. There's two ways. As our worship team comes, maybe the best way for us to remember this today around Palm Sunday is that there's two ways to build your life, the way of the war horse or the peace donkey. One way is the kingdom of God, the other is the way of the kingdoms of this world, but only one of those ways actually leads to the life, the freedom, and the peace that Jesus offers. So you hope family. Unlike the people that get caught up in the mob mentality at the parade and then on the Friday, will we trust that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about? He actually is on to something when he calls us to follow him into these upside-down ways of the kingdom of God, this power under way of the cross, not trying to grasp for power and posturing like some dude on a horse, but in humility, riding in on a donkey, <laughs> a peace donkey. Because when we say yes to following Jesus, that is what we are saying yes to. And that's what we keep saying yes to because he continues to transform us, to, to change us, to restore us and heal us. As we say yes to building our lives, not on the foundation of the kingdoms of this world, but on the foundation of Jesus' way and Jesus' kingdom. But it's up to you. Which way? Which way will you Choose which way will I choose? Which way will we choose? Will you stand with me?